0: If you have your Bible, turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter four. We continue our series going through the book of First Thessalonians, thinking about the return of the Lord and our preparation for that day. I don't know why, but today's worship felt particularly sweet to me. I have a sense that maybe God was picking us up and carrying us along. And I trust that he does that one because he's worthy of praise and he draws it out of his people to bring himself glory, because he's committed to receiving glory, because he is worthy. I trust, too, that he does it for us so that we might be prepared to receive his word and then walk in obedience, uh, that we would be prepared to be changed from our time together in God's word. Let me pray towards that end. Lord Jesus, we come to your word and we submit ourselves to its authority and we pray that you would help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let us not be deaf to your truth today you speak through me, your vessel? and Would you prepare our hearts to receive? And Lord Jesus, we pray specifically and, uh, and just with a sense of fervency, not just for ourselves who are in you, but for our friends who do not know you, who are here with us today. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would move and work in their hearts as we have experienced you move and work in ours. We didn't choose you, you chose us and we responded to that. And we would ask that you might do the same in them. That would be our great desire. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, well will you play a little game with me? Can we do that to get started? If you have a dog, I want you to stand up. If you own a dog, stand up for me. First of all, wise choice, way to go everybody. So now, the people who don't own dogs are thinking we have way less work than you people and it's awesome. All right, so let's play a little game here. I want you to sit down if what I say does not describe your dog. All right, sit down if your dog will not go outside to go to the bathroom. If, you, if your dog goes outside to go to the bathroom, stay standing. Some, no puppies? Well done, everybody. Some, now, don't lie about your dog right now. Okay, don't lie. Yeah, it's okay, somebody sat down. Good job. Thank you, let's be honest. All right. You can stay standing if your dog sits on command, okay? Oh, a few more, (laughs) you're like, meh. Like once every 10 times does not count. All right, you can stay standing if your dog will shake your hand when you give it the command to shake. All right, we're getting from the remedial class here. If you can get your dog to lay down, when you command it to lay down, it will lay down. A few more, go by the wayside. Uh-huh, uh-huh, all right. Amanda, I don't know why you're still standing, I think that's a lie. <laughs> for you, but not for me? <laughs> we'll have a conversation when we get home. If your dog will walk next to you on a leash, not pull you, not like drag you down the street, but walk next to you I want you to take a look around because we got some good dog owners, right, left standing. All right, now let's really test you now. You can stay standing if your dog will walk next to you, not on a leash. Come on. All right, here it is. This is the final one. We still got a few. All right, good job if your dog will walk next to you, not on a leash, even when another dog or a squirrel reveals itself. (laughs) These are the best dog owners in the world. Give them a round of applause. You guys can sit down, thank you. They didn't say that their dogs are like 15 years old and can't see. So they chase nothing. No, I'm kidding. So for those dogs that were like the cream of the crop there that we just saw, do you know why you can train a dog to do those things? Because unlike a cat, a dog wants to please you. (laughs) Cat wants you to please them. But dogs, have you ever, I mean, so, you know, if you own a dog, one of the joys of owning a dog is that look in their face, like, I just want to please you. I just want to do what you want me to do. I want to understand. I want to figure it out. I want to do it. Have you guys experienced that? Yes? And those dogs who are the best trained that we saw are probably the ones who want to please their master the most. They're the ones that just long to please. It's such a simple approach to life, isn't it? To think, I just want to please my master. It's all I want. I just want to please my master. Now you can probably guess where I'm going with this. So we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter four. What Paul is gonna teach us is that we should be people who just want to please our master. It's a simple approach to life. It's not complicated or complex that we live to please God. That we want to see joy in his face. And here's the beauty of that is, you know, when I say we live to please God, God is not a, uh, a withholding uh, or an angry father who sort of is like, I'm going to sort of frown upon you or smile upon you. I'm going to give or withhold, I'm going to sort of give or withhold my love based upon your performance. He's not like that. And here the, the parenting metaphor is helpful or the experience of parenting is helpful because if you were raised in a home where your parents sought to honor God, then you know the distinction between a parent who loved you no matter what, unconditionally, but at times could be displeased with your choices, yes? That that exists, that's a real thing. They didn't give their love or withhold their love based upon your performance. It was yours and it was freely given because you are their child. That's how God is but it is possible for God to be pleased and displeased with the choices that we make in life. And so when we say we live to please God, it's a good reminder that we want to see a smile on our Heavenly Father's face because of the things that we do, yes? We, we want to live and breathe and move and think thoughts and, and speak words and take actions that please God. That cause him to say, I'm well pleased with that. Well done, well done. That may be the simplest of all sort of vetting of all of our actions and thoughts is, does this please God? Does it please him? Now you remember throughout First Thessalonians, we've been thinking about this theme of keeping awake, by which Paul means, when he's gonna bring that phrase to us in chapter five, he means be ready for Jesus to return. Keep awake, be ready, live a life that that shows that you're ready for Jesus to return. And in chapter four here, what we're going to find is that the person who's awake, who's keeping awake, is the person who's living to please God. Is the person who's thinking, "I, I just want to please you. That's what I want my life to be like. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses one to 12 together. So Paul says, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you, So as you read that text, I hope what stands out to you is that keeping awake means living to please God more and more. Did you see that phrase in there? Two different times. As you're doing, do so more and more. He says you're living to please God, now live to please him more and more. You're loving one another, now love one another more and more. And Paul's going to give us three ways in this text, three ways that we can Live to please God more and more. So I want to walk you through those three things. But first, let me make a a quick little side note about that phrase, more and more. That should both encourage you and challenge you when you see that phrase. Encourage you and challenge you. Here's the encouragement of that phrase. Did you notice he is not saying that the Christian life is one where you never actually accomplish any sort of growth. He's saying, you are doing these things, Thessalonians. You are living to please God. I see it, I know it, I recognize it, and he calls it out, isn't that really great? Because he's not saying, you've made no progress, what's wrong with you people? How could you live this way? I can't stand you guys. You're driving me crazy. He doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, you're doing well, in essence, but I want you to do it more, more and more. No matter how much maturity you have walked into in the Lord, while he would say, you're doing it, well done, he would say there's more. There's further to go. There's more of me to know. There's more obedience to walk in. There's gonna be future opportunities to choose what is right and good and beautiful and true and opportunities where I don't want you to fall down and walk in a way that's the opposite of what pleases me. So that's what that phrase more and more means. It's both an encouragement, you're doing it, good job, keep doing more, that's the challenge side of that. Does that make sense? I hope you'll receive that encouragement and challenge. Maybe I I could just say to you that the Lord might say to you today, well done, do more and more, don't stop don't be satisfied. Don't be satisfied with whatever place of maturity. you're If you're 93 years old today, don't be satisfied. There's more holiness to live and walk in. If you're 13 today, don't be satisfied, but know that the Lord looks at you and when you, when you obey him, he says, well done, and he's pleased, he's pleased. So that's the first thing we need to see is this, this more and more, both an encouragement and a challenge. Now, here's the three things that Paul's going to identify in this passage about how we can live to please God more and more. The first is that we would be more and more sexually pure. More and more sexually pure. I'm sure you saw that in the text. Number two is that we would love each other more and more. He keeps coming back to that throughout this book, doesn't he? Love each other more and more. And then the last one is that we would keep a good reputation with unbelievers. That we would keep a good reputation with unbelievers more and more. All right, so those are the three things he's going to point out. If you want to say, well, how do I please God? How do I live in a manner worthy of him? This is what Paul reminds the Thessalonians of. And you are ready for the return of Jesus when you are striving after these things. So let's take them one by one. The first one is that we would be more and more sexually pure. And we find this in verses three through eight so let's look at it again after in verses one and two his talking about living to please God then in verse three he says for this is the will of God your sanctification now let's let's do a full stop right there because the thing I want you to recognize is that before he gets into any specific application of that he is saying if you want to know my will for you here it is that you would be holy now, how many of us have spent so much time, and, and I'm thinking particularly, because if we're older, we've been through this stage, but man, college students, I spend so much time talking to so many of y'all, and quite often, it's, it's all kinds of questions. Is it God's will that I marry this person? Is it God's will that I go to this school? Is it God's will that I major in this, or that I take this job, or move to this place? Would you agree that you're asking a lot of questions about God's will? Is that fair enough? And it's good, you should be asking those questions. So here's a great reminder Before God says, my will for you is this specific thing or that specific thing, which it is in different times. He will lead you in different ways and say, this is my will for you. I want you to walk in it. Above those things, the broader category of God's will is that you would be holy. That's what he wants for you first. Nothing. So in other words, you can count on the fact that it is not God's will. Nothing for you is God's will that is not a pursuit of holiness. Or that doesn't lead to greater holiness. That word sanctification that you saw there in verse three, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. That word is literally the word holiness. It's the noun holiness. In the Greek, it's the word, I always remember it because I went to Texas A&M and our mascot is thee. Does anybody know? The Aggies, the Greek word for holiness, is agios. So just remember Texas A&M and you'll think holiness. Done. He says, my will for you is that you would be holy. That's my will for you. And friends, I just want you to remember that. I want you to remember that if you're asking questions about God's will, the first question you should always ask is, does this bring about holiness in my life? And if it doesn't, it is not his will. It's it's just certain. You don't even have to ask anymore. You can put it down, be done with it, and move away. Okay, so that's the first thing. Now, he goes into the specific expression of this when he says then the rest of verse 3 so get your eyes back on it there in the text it says this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor now again let's pause there it's going to go all the way through verse 8 this discussion of of sexual purity But the first thing we should ask is, why, if Paul is talking generally about holiness, why is the first expression of that for him to talk about sexual purity? Why would he go there first? I mean, why not go to family life? Why not go to our work ethic? Why not go to, you can imagine, there's a lot of places you could go, right? Our thought life, our our exercise and not being gluttons. You could go to a lot of different places when it comes to holiness. And the first place Paul goes is this place of saying you need to be sexually pure. Now, I wanna give you a couple answers to that question. So why is this the first and highly important issue that Paul goes to? Well, the first is the context. So let's, let's just get into the historical context here for a second. Paul is talking to the Thessalonian church, and in Thessalonica, just like in Corinth and like in most other ancient cities, there were all these cults that had these impure sexual practices that were part of their worship. Part of the worship of false gods is usually connected to something in the sexual realm. That was true in the ancient world, and it's just as true today because the primary god in our society is the god of self. And the worship of the God of self leads to all manners of sexual impurity. Any worship of any God other than King Jesus leads to sexual impurity, almost without exception. Whether it be the God of self in our day and age, which is kind of hidden from us, or whether it be the idols of the ancient Near East in Thessalonica. But there were all these impure sexual practices that the Thessalonians who had come to Jesus had been part of these cult groups, And he's saying, you've got to come out of those things. That is what false gods do to you. Now, let me note, why does that happen? Why do false gods, and let's just be real specific, why does the devil, through false gods, try to get us into sexual impurity? Why is that a major strategy of his? Because there are very few sins as destructive as sexual sin. There are very few sins that destroy and degrade and demean as much as sexual sin. And that's because, as we'll see in a moment, sexuality is part of the way we bear the image of God, and our practice of sex is meant to be one of the ways that we display the glory of God and worship him. It is a good thing, not a bad thing. And therefore, it is meant to be used in a glorious and pure and good way. Now... If the devil can get us off track in that, if these false gods can convince us that things are pure that are not pure, then they can degrade us and destroy us in ways that we don't even realize. Sexual sin is so deceptive. Friends, hear me, if I had a dollar for every young couple who's come to me and said, well, we love each other so it's no problem that we're living together and sexually active before marriage, I would have a lot of money. Friends, hear me, with great compassion towards you, you are destroying yourself. There's a reason Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter six, he says, sometimes people will get on to me a little bit and say, you sort of, you make sexual sin this paramount thing, and you make, uh, make it seem like it's, it's worse than other sins, and I would say, I have biblical precedent for that. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter six, what does Paul say? He says, all other sins you commit are outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Lord? In other words, what Paul is saying is sexual sin is particularly destructive. Do you see that? Okay, so there it is. There's your biblical warrant for seeing the particular destructiveness of sexual sin. And I don't call you out or challenge you because I don't love you or judge you. It's because I don't want you to be destroyed. I want you to live. I don't want God to be pleased with you. Any practice of sex, outside, consensual, loving, self-giving sex between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage is sin. Any practice of, and it will destroy you. It will absolutely destroy you. You don't see it, I know right now, some of you think to yourself, I'm fine. I'm fine. When cancer starts growing in your body, you don't know it's there. You are not fine. Now, so that's number one, is the context and the particular danger of sexual sin. I think that's why he comes to that application first. But let's think about our theology of sex because anytime I get to talk about this, it's so important because many of us were raised perhaps to believe sex was either like icky or dangerous or bad and we needed to stay away from it and so it created this this sense in us that sex was somehow not of the Lord or not good, and that twists up our thinking on it all the time and usually leads to bad practices. And I just want to remind you what a good thing it is, therefore let's use it the way God designed it. Let's use it according to God's design. So a second reason why Paul seems, to, I think, goes first to sexual purity as a way to please God is because sexual purity is supposed to be one of the primary differences between people who know God and those who don't. The way we live sexually is meant to be one of the primary differences and markers of that difference between those who know God and those who don't. Look at verse five, here's where I get this from. In verse five, he says you need to know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, that's verse four. And what did he say in verse five? Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not what? know God. Gentiles there is, is sort of a broad term he's using for unbelievers. Some of these Thessalonian believers are Gentiles, but they've come to know God, but they would have a lot of friends and family who did not know God. And he's saying, those of you who know God should know how to control your body. You should know how to use it in holiness and in honor. And you should have no expectation that those who don't know God would do that because the reason you do it is because you know God. You don't do it because it's just wise or because it's just safe or because it's just, you know, emotionally good. You do it because you want to please God. And those who don't know God don't care about pleasing God. It's a really simple argument. Do you follow it? If you know God, you want to please him. If you want to please him, you need to be sexually pure. That's the argument that he's making. Now let's think again about our theology of sex. Why do we say that sex is this important good thing that God has given us within to be practiced within the bounds of marriage? Two things that let's think about when it comes to sexuality. Number one, sex exists to, dis- well, first marriage exists to display the image of God that he is, Both diversity within unity or unity within diversity, that He is three in one God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one being. And when God creates man and woman and brings them together in union, and that union includes sexual union in marriage, because we seal our covenant with that sexual union. When he brings us together in that way, he is showing diversity within unity. He's saying, I've made this thing, this beautiful thing called marriage and sex within it as an expression of my very nature. That's why you save sex for marriage, because outside of that covenant union, you cannot display unity within diversity, not at least the kind of unity that God delights and desires. Does that make sense? That's number one. Number two, we find later then, that's Old Testament, New Testament, and that still exists. It doesn't change when we come into the New Testament. But New Testament now, we get a new thing because Jesus comes into the world and he says, the church is my bride and I am her husband. And so all marriages now, let me show you what you didn't know before in the, under the Old Covenant, all marriages actually exist to display what I am like with my church that I am the groom and she is the bride and I am in covenant faithfulness to her. <laughs> and so that's what Christian marriage exists. And even marriages that aren't Christian marriages should, are, are intended to display it, but they can't because they don't honor and reverence Christ. So they come up short in that. And yet that marriage can still be a good and God-honoring thing. Now, within that covenant of marriage, that intimacy and joy and closeness that Christ gives us with himself, through covenant with him. It requires a what? A covenant. You cannot have the intimacy without the covenant, without the promise, without the commitment. Therefore, sex gets practiced within that covenant as an expression of the intimacy that Christ delights to have with his church. There's a reason why marriage and therefore sex will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth. Because the intimacy it was designed to display will be finally ours in Christ. He'll be with us and all our desires and for intimacy and closeness and connection will be satisfied in him. Therefore marriage will cease to exist. Jesus taught us that, do we remember that? Did you say in the new heaven and the new earth we don't give or receive in marriage. It's doesn't exist because marriage is a placeholder until Jesus comes back. And we, the bride of Christ, are wed to him. And we partake of the wedding feast with him. And we are with him as bride is with her groom forever. Your marriage exists in this life to display that. It's a spiritual reality wrapped in humanity. So when you think about sexuality, you need to think about it in those terms. He has created it for a purpose. And that purpose is to display something far better and greater than how you're using it if you're utilizing a cheap version of it. Now listen, marriage does a lot more. It, it, it helps us fulfill the mandate. Uh, sex helps us fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and Cultivate the earth or subdue the earth through procreation. I mean, there's different purposes for sexuality, but those two main ones are the ones I want you to see and understand. You will never be satisfied until you walk in sexual purity. All other expressions of sexuality will leave you empty. It's why use of pornography almost always goes from sort of the typical to the extreme, to more degrading, more demeaning, more off the beaten path. That's why pornography, when given into, leads to different areas of it and continues to extend itself because what it doesn't want to do is just leave you in one spot. And it doesn't satisfy, which is why you chase after more and more and more. But there is a satisfying Sexually pure experience of life. It exists. God has made you for it, should he bring you into marriage. The third reason why I think sexual purity gets hit on first in this area of sanctification as a way to please God is because for those of you who are single, whether for a season or for a lifetime, sexual abstinence in singleness displays Jesus as that which ultimately satisfies. You get to display the reality of the kingdom and what, we, what will be through your singleness now. Now listen, because that's, I, I've had conversations with folks that would say, give me a different answer than that. I'd like a different answer, please. I don't have a different answer for you because the Bible doesn't have a different answer for you. I just don't. I can make something up, but it would be worthless to you. Now, I love what John Stott says. If you know John Stott, one of of my heroes within the evangelical faith, and he was single his whole life and his whole ministry as a pastor. And this is what he wrote. I read this by him this week. He said, he was talking about this passage, actually, and he said, an additional paragraph is needed for those of us, he's talking about himself, who are single and therefore lack the God-given context for sexual love. What about us? We too must accept this apostolic teaching, however hard it may seem, as God's good purpose, both for us and for society. We shall not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Did you catch that? Christ's yoke is easy, provided that we submit to it. It is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. Hear that, friends. It is possible for that sexual energy to be redirected into friendships and into service to the Lord by serving others. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this. Alongside, now get this, Alongside a natural loneliness accompanied sometimes by acute pain, we can find joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God and other people. When my single brothers and sisters, <clears throat> I was single until I was 31, which isn't an incredibly long time, but it's not a short time either. And I would say in my season of singleness, I would say amen to that. It's absolutely true. You don't have to pine away from marriage. You can serve. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 tells you there's an effectiveness in your service that is radical. I felt and experienced that. Now, God brought me, after that season, brought me into a season of marriage. And there's a beauty and an effectiveness in that. I'm glad and grateful for it. There's a goodness to that as well. But one is not superior to the other. One is not superior to the other. All that matters is God's call upon your life. And friends, hear me. You have the opportunity to display and glorify God in a way that your married brothers and sisters do not. Whether it's for a season, should God bring you from a season of singleness into marriage, rejoice in that, that is good. But should he not, he is not deficient and he is not, not enough for you. He is enough. And the way you choose to live in sexual purity will determine whether people see that to be true or not. I really appreciate what Dr. Stott says there when he says, it will come with loneliness and at times acute pain. Did you catch that? Do you know that every one of us who follow Jesus will feel acute pain over some part of life where we want something and we don't have it? That will be part of following Jesus. You will want something, a restored relationship somewhere, a kid not running off the reservation going crazy. You'll want some job promotion. You'll want a marriage that seems this way or that way. You will want something and there will be pain from not having it. How you rely on the Lord and trust him and call on him as good, in spite of that pain, will determine whether or not you display Jesus to a watching world. Last thing I want to say in this category, um, why does Paul single out sexual purity as a way to please the Lord, is because sexual purity is a way of loving the church. It's a way of loving the whole church. So rather than just think about it as as a highly personal issue, look at what verse six says after talking about the difference between those who know God and those who don't in verse five, then he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now one, you need to see there that Paul is giving a warning that God's hand of discipline will be on you if you walk in sexual impurity. Do you see that? But notice also that he says no one should transgress or wrong their brother. And what he's saying there is not just that you would commit adultery, take someone else's spouse and wrong that brother whose spouse it is. He's talking generally about the cost of overstepping your bounds. That word for transgress and wrong, it literally means to take what is not yours, to overstep your boundaries and to take what is not yours. And any time you take a sexual partner whom you are not married to, you are taking something that is not yours. Men and women alike. When you take a sexual partner who you are not married to, you are taking something that is not yours, and you don't just sin against your own body, as 1 Corinthians 6 said. You don't just sin against that other person whom you take as a partner. You sin against their parents, who are called to watch over them and keep them until the day they are given in marriage. You sin against their future spouse who wants them to be guarded in purity. You sin against the body of believers that come together as the church because sexual impurity robs them of spiritual power to impart ministry into the life of the body. And when you partake of that act with them, you are robbing the body of something it needs from that person that if they were walking in purity, they could give. Sexual sin goes way bigger than just you and that other person. It it is an egregious sin against your brothers and sisters at large. Does that make sense? That's why Paul says here, don't overstep and take what doesn't belong to you. Because you've wronged your brother when you've done that. Not just wronged you, not just wronged the other person that is your partner in that act, You have wronged the church. Now friends, listen to me. Hear me. Look at me. God is calling you to sexual purity to be pleasing to you. And let me just say to you, if you are not walking in that sexual purity, he is not pleased. But you can do so, what's our phrase? More and more. You can walk in it more and more. Let today be the day. God does not withhold his love from you because of your sexual sin. He looks on you with tenderness and love and he says I have something better for you. Come and walk in it. Come and receive it. Don't walk in the old way anymore. I love you so much. Come. Know that I'm enough for you if you're single. Know that there is a different version of sexuality than whatever you're experiencing. If it's outside of that will of God that is loving, consensual, tender, self-giving sexual expression between a man and a woman in the bond of marriage, know that I have something so good for you. So hear the challenge and hear the encouragement. More and more, you can have it more and more. Today. Well, I spent way longer on that than I intended. So I'm going to hit the last two somewhat quickly. That was the most important thing for you to get today. It's the majority of the text. So I felt right spending more time on it, but I probably went a little longer than I needed. Look at verses 9 through 12 again. And here's where we say: if you want to please God, love each other more and more, and we've been hearing a lot about this. The primary way he's gonna say that we love each other is by being generous with what we have and by working hard. By being generous with what we have and working hard so that we're not depending on someone else to just support us. What was going on in Thessalonica, and we see this in Second Thessalonians chapter three, is that some of them were saying, Jesus is coming back, so I don't need to work. I don't need to do anything. He's coming back any day now. I'll just sponge off my brothers and sisters. The rich people in the church will help me out and take care of me. That's the idea. And he's saying, no, 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 no. First of all, that misunderstands work. God made you to work. Work isn't going away when Jesus comes back. It's just the fruitlessness that comes with work is going to go away. Because sin is going away and that whole Adam thing of tilling the ground and not being able to produce much and it's a strain and it's a toil, that's going away. Now you're gonna work and you're gonna see production like you've never seen before. You're gonna see fruitfulness and joy and, and enjoyment of labor. You were made to work. That's, that's hugely important to a good theology of work and what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is, no, you were made to work. In fact, he's gonna say there, if you don't work, don't, you don't get to eat. So he's going to say in 2 Thessalonians, but here he's saying to them, he's saying, I want you to be generous with one another. I don't want you to withhold from one another. If someone's in need, give, give. But he says, for those of you who are just not, he's not saying not able to work. He's saying you can, but you choose not to. And if that's you, he's saying go to work. Start working. Start working. You were made to work. Look at verse nine through 12. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So there's the generosity part because he's talking about that they had given money to other churches around the region who were hurting, people who were in need. That's what he's referring to there. And so he's applauding them for that generosity, for helping other brothers and sisters in need. He's saying, well done, well done. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. So we're going to come back to those and to work with your hands as we instructed. You know, there he's not saying the only kind of valid work is like manual labor. He's just pointing out that's the way most of them would have made their living. And he's saying, work. I want you to work. Work. That's how we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he does a little back and forth in these last couple verses. He's connecting the idea of um, working with your hands and being dependent on no one in verse 12, that last phrase. And he's talking about that's the loving one another part. He's saying, if you're going to love one another, you're going to have to work hard. So, for instance, let's just apply this within the life of our body. If, you, if you're a regular attender, this is your church home, and you give nothing financially to the church, you're putting an undue burden on all the other believers here to give. It's not okay. If you don't have a plan for giving, you need to give. Now, if this isn't a church where you feel like your money's being used for kingdom purposes, go somewhere else. You should not be at a church where you think that money's not being used for kingdom purposes. To accomplish God's work in the world. But if, that's, if you know that that's the case here, then you should be giving. And if you don't, one of the things you're doing is you're depending on everyone else to support the work that God is doing here. And that's not okay. That's what Paul is saying. It's not okay. You need to work hard so that you can be part of contributing to the work that the body is doing. That's what Paul is getting at when he says, and if, that's a way of loving one another. It's a way of loving one another. So be generous like the Thessalonians were with the Macedonian region, the way they gave generously. And don't stop working, as some there were. Work. All right. Then the last thing we see, I told you I was gonna hit that one fast. Last one we see is keeping a good reputation with unbelievers. This is really important here, because here's what I want you to draw the line, the connection that he makes. Because in verse 11 and 12, he says, Aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs. And then he says, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And then the first part of verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. He's connecting living quietly and minding your own affairs to having a good reputation with outsiders. And by outsiders he means those who don't believe in Jesus. He's saying I want you to to have a good reputation with them, right? I want you to behave properly towards them. What's he, what's he getting at there? That phrase, live quietly and mind your own affairs, is an interesting, it's a, it's a combination that in Paul's world meant don't be overly involved in political and civil affairs. Don't be overly involved in political and civil affairs. Now, I don't think here, I'm going to give you my impression, my understanding, I don't think what Paul is saying is don't vote, don't care about anything p- political, just throw your hands up as a believer on all civil matters and go, it doesn't matter what happens. Who cares about legislation? I I don't think he's saying that. But he is saying that there's a way of engaging in political and civil issues that doesn't keep your gospel ministry and your gospel reputation first in mind. More important than what happens in that realm is whether or not you are helping people one by one come to faith in Jesus. And if your reputation is diminished before outsiders because of the way you engage these things, then you are not obeying Jesus, the command of Paul here to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Now, one particular context thing there is that Paul probably has in mind that, remember, when he spread the gospel into Thessalonica, he got booted out of town and the Thessalonians were undergoing persecution. They were being punished because of their new faith by the other people in their city. And part of what Paul is doing is incredibly pragmatic. He's saying, look, you don't need to invite more condemnation and more persecution on yourself by sticking your nose into things that you don't really need to. You can live quietly and mind your own affairs and it will help you not be persecuted more than is necessary. That's just incredibly pragmatic. We don't seek out persecution, yes? We don't shy away from it when it comes, but we don't seek it out. Part of what Paul is saying here is incredibly pragmatic. He's just saying, don't. Don't invite more of it by sort of being a busybody or getting involved in things where you can just go, you know what, it's okay. I can just just pull back and live a godly life. Live quietly in that way. Again, I don't think he's saying have no involvement in anything political. I think there's wonderful brothers and sisters that are called into government, yes? Absolutely, so please don't hear me say that. But I do think what he's saying is the first thing you should be concerned about is extending the gospel to other people. And if any way that you engage in political and civil issues prevents that or diminishes that in any way, you need to take stock of the way you're engaging it. You need to take stock of the way you're engaging it. I think that's what he means by live quietly and mind your own affairs so that you would keep a good reputation to outsiders, with those who don't believe. Ultimately, our hope is not in any piece of legislation. It's not in any turn of government into our favor. Our hope is in the coming of the Lord Jesus, and he will establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Now, we live to see that kingdom established as fully as we can see it established until he returns, and that does mean engaging for righteous legislation in any way we can, but it also means listening to this admonition from scripture to live quietly and to mind our own affairs that we might keep a good reputation with those who need to see what it's like for us that we trust God, we trust him. We see that he's sovereign and we want to live to serve him. We want to live that he would be pleased. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Every time we open it together, it is such a gift, it is such a blessing. We don't have to rely on our own wisdom. We don't have to think through issues just and try to figure out what wisdom looks like. You tell us and you show us and thank you for it. Help us to really hear your word. And Lord Jesus, as always, if anything I've said doesn't track with with your will in your word as it's revealed, just let it be washed away. I pray that you would, though, take now your word, plant it in our hearts, and let it produce a harvest of righteousness in us. Come, Lord Jesus. We wanna know you, we wanna see you, and we long to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. May we live so that you're well pleased. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.